Good evening. It's good to be together tonight. Appreciate you being here tonight. This is a day that the Lord has made, and we should be rejoicing in it. This isn't just a day that the Lord has made. It's, it's the first day of the week where we as Christians have the opportunity to assemble together. And then add on top of that, it's been a beautiful day, hasn't it? I hope you've enjoyed today. I hope that today's been encouraging to you. As we go throughout this week, we want to live for Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to show other people Jesus through the way that we live, through the way that we talk, through the way that we act. And that's been our aim. That's been our goal as we've been studying the Gospel of Mark together. If we can look at the life of Jesus, we can become more like Jesus and better show Him to other people. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to begin there where we left off a few weeks ago in verse number 15. We'll begin in Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. And tonight I want us to survey a few stories stretching to Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. So we'll start in Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. And eventually we'll work our way to Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. As we think about the topic, tension with Jesus. Have you ever been in a tense situation where it's like two different groups pulling on the same rope in opposite directions? Have you ever been in a situation where you could cut the tension with a knife? It's a tension that could be felt. I remember in my senior year at Freed Hardman University, Leslie and I had cooked a chicken casserole for dinner. We were sitting at the table with uh, four friends. Three of them were my roommates at the time, and we were eating dinner together. Whenever we finished eating, Leslie asked me, how did you like the chicken casserole? Just joking, I said, well, it was pretty good, just not as good as my mom makes it. You know, that's a mistake. But let me clarify that I was just kidding. I I mean, I thought everybody in the room knew that I was just joking. Even though that was the case, it was a pretty tense moment. Leslie was looking at me with a look that said, what in the world did you just say? Kind of like the look that some of you had. And then the friends who were sitting around the table, I remember them, they looked like they could just sink into the floor. I mean, just melt into the floor. I had a look on their face. Really, Tyler? You, you really just said that? Made things a little bit... Oh, it, it was a tense situation. Whenever we look at the Gospel of Mark, we see several different tense situations between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Most of the time, it's between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the scribes, Jesus and those who were associated with that tradition of Judaism at the time. In fact, the tension goes all the way back to chapter 3 and verse number 6. You remember this? After having several encounters with Jesus, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Him What were they talking about? What was their counsel about? They were talking about how they could destroy Jesus. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, we're in Mark chapter 11 now, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, the Jews were together talking about how they could destroy Jesus. They were together talking about how they could kill Jesus. The tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders has been growing and building throughout the Gospel of Mark. Well, now we're at Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. As we studied a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has entered into the, Jeru- into the city of Jerusalem as the welcomed and victorious king. They're welcoming him as the prophesied king, the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. 
It's in this text from chapter 11 and verse 15 to chapter 12 and verse 37 where we find several different stories in a row where Jesus and the religious leaders are at a standoff. It's stories that are defined by tension where they are having conversations with one another. Sometimes they start with the religious leaders. Sometimes they start with Jesus. Regardless of where they start, it builds the tension between the two groups. So let's walk through this text together. Let's scan these stories and think about the tension that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders. Number one, the religious leaders had tension with Jesus whenever it came to using religion to take advantage of people. You see that in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Back in the first century, Jews were scattered all over the known world at the time. They would travel to Jerusalem from all over the place in order to worship God and make sacrifices at the temple. As they came to the temple, they didn't bring the materials for sacrifice with them. It was a long journey. It was a difficult journey. They had enough to take as it was. They didn't bring the animals or the doves with them in order to make sacrifices. They would just buy them whenever they got there. The problem with that is that the leaders in the temple were taking advantage of people. In order to buy something in the temple, you had to swap out your Roman money for what they called shekels. They charged a certain price on top of that in order to exchange the money. And then whenever they went to go buy the materials that they needed for the sacrifices that they were going to make at the temple, they had severely overpriced the animals. They had severely overpriced the materials that they needed. They were using religion to take advantage of people. And they're not the first ones to do that. They're not going to be the last ones to do that. I think about your typical televangelist on TV, right? J just send me all of your money and God is going to pour out blessing in your life. This is not something that's new. In fact, it's something that's very old. Using religion to take advantage of people. How did Jesus respond to that? Whenever they turned His Father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves, how did Jesus respond? This is the scene where in righteous indignation, in righteous anger, Jesus drives out the money changers with whips that He put together. He overturns the money changers' tables and chairs and drives them out of the temple. Can you imagine the tension that that's going to create? Mark actually tells us in Mark chapter 11 and verse number 18 that when the chief priests and scribes heard it, as we read in our Scripture reading, they were seeking a way to destroy Him for they feared Him because all the crowd was astonished at His teaching. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to do something to, to Jesus as this tension was continuing to build, but they couldn't because of the people. The people were astonished at His teaching. They believed Jesus to be a prophet. They believed, many of them, Jesus to be the Messiah. And so they couldn't lay their hands on Jesus without turning the rest of the people against them. But you can see the tension as it continues to build. As we walk throughout the rest of this text, the Pharisees are going to confront Jesus or Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees and all that it results in is the tension becoming greater. Number two, the religious leaders had tension with Jesus concerning the source of Jesus' authority. Perhaps you notice a gap there between verse 19 
and verse 27. I decided to skip over that section of Scripture because in our Wednesday night, our, our auditorium Wednesday night Bible class, we actually covered that section of Scripture just a few weeks ago. We looked at a lesson called Lessons from the Fig Tree, focused in Mark chapter 11, 12 through 14, and Mark 11, 20 through 26. I didn't think it would be the most profitable thing to rehash that conversation. So maybe you were in the ladies' class. Maybe you were teaching some of our kids over here. If you feel like you're missing out on something in the Gospel of Mark, I'd love to give you notes on that section of Scripture. Lessons from the fig tree where Jesus teaches us about faith and Jesus teaches us about prayer. But let's focus on these scenes of tension here where they have tension with Jesus concerning the source of His authority. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. I imagine nobody else has ever done this before. He put together whips and drove out the people. He overturned their tables. He overturned their chairs. And so it brings a question in the Pharisees' mind. What gives you the right to do this? Who gave you the authority to do these kind of things? Jesus masterfully responds to their question with another question. He told them, you answer my question and I'll answer yours, okay? The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from man? They're trying to back Jesus into a corner and all of a sudden they recognize that they've been backed into a corner. If they answer that question saying that the baptism of John was from heaven, why didn't they believe it? That would naturally be the next question. If they answer the question saying that the baptism of John was from man, well, once again, they feared the people. The people regarded John to be a prophet. It would turn the people against them, so they pled the fifth. They remained silent. They didn't answer Jesus' question. And Jesus told them, I'm not going to answer your question either. Number three, they had tension with Jesus whenever it came to the rejection of God's Son. In the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12, this is one of the places where Jesus goes on the offense. Jesus tells a parable about God's relationship with Israel. On the surface, we know a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. On the surface, this is a story about a man, a rich man, who owns a vineyard. He lives far away, so he leased out that vineyard to some tenants to take care of it. He would send servants to the vineyard in order to collect fruit and bring it back to him. But every time the servants came to the vineyard, the tenants killed them and rejected them and didn't let them get the fruit. And so eventually the man said, I'm just going to send my son. Surely they won't hurt my son. Surely they won't kill my son. But that's exactly what they did. So what's the owner of the vineyard going to do, Jesus asked? He's going to rain down punishment on the tenants of the vineyard and then lease the vineyard to somebody else. Now that's the story, but you can see the meaning behind it, right? Especially as Jesus is addressing the Jewish religious leaders, He's talking about God's relationship with Israel. Back in the Old Testament time, Israel was God's chosen people. They were the nation that He had chosen out of the entire world. The problem was they chose to be disobedient to God. And so God would send prophets to the nation of Israel in order to try to bring them back to Himself. But what would they do to the prophets? 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14-16 through 16, talks about how they would reject the prophets, they would kill the prophets, they would persecute the prophets just like the tenants did to the servants. So what did God do? He sent His Son to the nation of Israel. And as we're going to continue studying throughout the Gospel of Mark over the next few weeks, Israel ends up rejecting God's own Son, Jesus Christ, and hanging Him on the cross. How is God the Father going to respond to that? 
punishment is going to be rained down on the Jewish nation. I think that happens in A.D. 70 whenever the temple is destroyed. God is going to take His vineyard and give it to somebody else. I think referring to His church, which is going to be made up of not only Jew, but also Gentiles. Jesus drives that point into their mind by quoting Psalm 118 and verse number 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the what? The chief cornerstone. The stone that they threw away, the the stone that they rejected has become the most important stone in the entire structure. It's become the most important stone in the entire building. Jesus says, that's me. You've rejected me. But now I have become the cornerstone. Once again, you can imagine how this tension is building. In verse number 12, it says, After Jesus spoke this parable, they were seeking to arrest Him, but feared the people, for they perceived that He had told the parable against them. The tension continues to grow. Number four, they try to take a different route. When we look at verses 13 through 17 in Mark chapter 12, they try to back Jesus into a political corner. They ask him a question Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? In other words, is it in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures? Is it in accordance with the Old Testament law for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Again, trying to back Jesus into a corner. If Jesus said, yes, it is lawful for you to pay those taxes, then a lot of Jews are going to be mad at him who felt like it wasn't the right thing to do. If he said, no, it's not right for you to pay those taxes, then he's going against the Romans. So it's either he's going to make the Jews mad or he's going to make the Romans mad. Here's the perfect situation to finally get Jesus. The people respect him so much, here we can tear down their view of Jesus. Once again, Jesus masterfully maneuvers this situation and gives an amazing answer. He takes a denarius and shows it to him and said, whose picture is on it? They said Caesar. Caesar's picture was on it. So Jesus told him what? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. This is not an either or situation. This is not a pick one, reject the other type of situation. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay the taxes But at the same time, honor God. And as Jesus gives such an amazing answer, you see the tension continue to build. Number five, there's tension with Jesus concerning the resurrection of the dead. So far, the Pharisees have been the ones approaching Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem in His last final days before His crucifixion. Now it's the Sadducees. What does this text tell us about the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in anything that was spiritual in nature. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees did not. And so they take up a conversation with Jesus and have tension with Jesus concerning the resurrection from the dead. We all love what-if situations, don't we? I mean, you can sit around and talk about what if this happens or what if that happens all day long. That's what the Sadducees are doing. Based on Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse number 5, they build this hypothetical situation. See, when you go back to Deuteronomy 25, you find a rule about marriage. If a man marries a woman and that man dies before they're able to have children, it's his brother's responsibility to step in and prolong his seed with his wife. And so they ask a what-if situation. Hey, what if a man marries a woman, they don't have children, he dies, and so she's passed on to the brother. And then that brother dies and she's passed on to the next brother. And that happens with seven brothers and she never has children with any of them. Pause. I think I might be questioning the woman. What about you? 
I, I don't know. She might be kind of difficult to live with if she's gone through seven brothers. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying there. But you think about this situation, it kind of discredits the resurrection, right? If she's married to these seven men throughout the course of her life and never has children with any of them, who's she going to be married to in the situation? In the resurrection? They thought that was a gotcha moment. If she's been married to all seven of them, who's she going to be married to in eternal life? Jesus responds by saying two things. First, He points out to the Sadducees that this life is not exactly like the next life. This life is not exactly what it's going to be like in the resurrection. He says people marry and are given in marriage on earth, but it's not going to be that way in the resurrection. We are going to be like angels in heaven, Jesus says in the resurrection. Marriage is not going to exist. So this hypothetical situation they've built, it's built on a faulty foundation. It's built on something that's not true about the next life. But then he continues to take a step forward to say, let me show you why there is going to be a resurrection. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. So that's where Jesus goes. He goes to the second book, the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and verse number 15, and quotes what God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for years. They had been dead for hundreds of years. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At one point, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm not anymore because they're dead. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. They are still in existence. They are waiting for the resurrection to happen. So as Jesus answers them, again, you can just feel this tension growing throughout this text. In number 6, in verses 28 through 34, the Pharisees once again have tension with Jesus concerning the interpretation of Scripture. Mark tells us that scribes who were experts in the Old Testament law were arguing back and forth with one another. They were arguing back and forth with Jesus, a very tense situation, whenever one scribe steps up to ask a question. Now this scribe, some believe was sincere in asking this question. I think when we go to a parallel account in Matthew chapter 22, we find that he's trying to put Jesus to the test. I think he eventually comes around to what Jesus says, but at the beginning, he's trying to put Jesus to the test. Which commandment is the most important of all of them? You know how many commands there are in the Old Testament Scriptures? I didn't count them. Trusting somebody else here, somebody said there's 613 commands in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's asking the question, what's the most important? Which is the most significant? And Jesus answers him. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the most important commandment. Fall in love with God and love God with everything that you have. But then there's a second that's like it. You can't separate the two. They're so closely related to one another. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God. Love people. Love God with everything that you have. Love each and every person that you meet just like you love yourself. That's what it all comes back to, Jesus says. Whenever the scribe admits that, that Jesus is right, Jesus answered that question in a way of wisdom. Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Which is a breath of fresh air in a text that gives us so much tension and, and so much debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Here's a scribe 
who's not far from God's kingdom. And then finally, number seven, there's some tension with Jesus about Jesus being the Messiah. As you could imagine in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders. That's verses 35 through 37. It was a common belief, in fact, based upon the Old Testament Scriptures, that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. He was going to be the son of David. Jesus wants to take that a little bit further. Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David. But he takes it a step further with Psalm 110 in verse number 1. Where David himself, verse 36, and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here David is speaking, speaking to the Lord, the Father. The Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah. Here Jesus points out that the Messiah is not just David's son. He's David's Lord. He's not just a descendant of David, but he is David's authority. And David himself acknowledged that. That's what Jesus is claiming for himself. He says, that's who I am. I'm the one who the Lord is speaking to here. I am the my Lord in Psalms 110 and verse 1. I'm David's Lord. I'm David's authority. I am the Messiah. As we continue in the next few weeks, we're going to see where that claim leads Jesus to. You know where it leads him to. It leads him to suffering. And it leads him to Calvary. But you look back over as the, these stories that we've just had the time to scan together tonight. Not able to talk about every detail. We see this tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Perhaps it should make us think about our own lives. Where do we have tension with Jesus? Where do you have tension with Jesus? In my life, where do I have tension with Jesus? Maybe. People have tension with Jesus whenever it comes to doctrine. I think there are a lot of religious groups out there that have tension with Jesus because their doctrine, their teaching, doesn't match Jesus' doctrine and teaching. Maybe we have tension with Jesus because of an unconditional support of a political party or a certain politician. Maybe there's tension with Jesus because we have tension with one another and we're fighting with one another and arguing with one another. Maybe we have tension with Jesus and in having tension with those who we're close to in life, our, our friends and family members. Maybe we have tension with Jesus whenever we go toe-to-toe with our enemies. Maybe we have tension with Jesus when we think about the sin in our lives that we're not quite willing to do anything about. Maybe everybody knows about the sin. Maybe nobody knows about the sin. But if there's sin in my life, that is naturally going to put me in tension with Jesus. We need to identify these areas. These areas need to come out of the darkness and into the light. Where do we have tension with the Lord? Where do I have tension with the Lord? Where do you have tension with the Lord? Recognize one idea from this text. Jesus is always right. That whenever we stand in tension with Jesus, Jesus is always going to be right. When these religious leaders from both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they are standing contrary to Jesus, they are standing in the wrong. Jesus is always right. When we have tension with Jesus, we can walk away mad. We can walk away frustrated. We can walk away like these religious leaders with the determination to come back stronger and better. I'll, I'll conquer Jesus if I just come from a different angle. When you have tension with Jesus, you might walk away upset, but you're always going to walk away wrong. Jesus is always right, and if I am in tension with Him, 
I'm always going to be wrong. So what are those areas where we are in tension with Jesus? And what can we do to bring our lives more in line with Him, His character, His commands? What can you do this week to resolve that tension with Jesus and be who He wants you to be? If we can help you to do that tonight, we would love to. As together we stand and sing.